Hello, and welcome to the State of Talk podcast, brought to you by the International Society for Conversation Analysis. I'm Saul Albert, lecturer in social science and social psychology at Loughborough University and one of the hosts of this podcast. In this episode, I'm pleased to introduce a feature interview with Doug Maynard and Jason Turowitz, co-authors of an exciting new book entitled Autistic Intelligence, published in summer 2022 by the University of Chicago Press. Doug Maynard is Emeritus Professor of Sociology in the Department of Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His ethnomethodological and conversation analytic work has explored fundamental structures of everyday topical talk and news delivery alongside foundational applied research on institutional forms of talk such as, for example, plea bargaining in legal settings and on the use of research instruments such as surveys and diagnostic interviews in social and medical sciences. Jason Turowitz is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Siegen. His research addresses questions of meaning, interaction and identity in social theory, communication and cultural sociology, specifically focusing on the experiences of people in socially marginal identities and on themes of power, resistance and moral decision making in interaction. His groundbreaking work at the Garfinkel Archive has been uncovering new lineages within and connections between ethnomethodology, philosophy and social theory. A great deal more could be said about each of their individual research contributions, but in this interview, I want to focus on their new book, Autistic Intelligence, and on their collaboration. Alongside their methodological contributions connecting ethnomethodology, social theory, and phenomenology, they've collaborated on a rich collection of applied EMCA publications focusing on the interactional practices associated with autism spectrum disorder and the sociology of diagnosis, including explorations of sequential narrative and categorical structures, diagnostic processes, and the social production of medical records, all themes which we touch on in the following interview. So, Doug, Jason, thank you very much for coming on the State of Talk podcast. I wanted to start with asking you for a little introduction to the project and how you came to work on the book. And maybe you could say something about your own experience and what led you to it and your own research and also something about the partnership and how that came to be. Jason and I were the primary collaborators on this project, but we had other collaborators as well. Waverly Duck, he's now at University of California, Santa Barbara, a great ethnomethodologist and conversation analyst and ethnographer, has been with us all along. Trina Stickel was integral to this study and we've co-published some things with her, Adam Talkington, and there have been others as well, but I would say though, unless Jason, you think I've left somebody out of the picture here. What a great experience it was for Jason and I to collaborate on this project. It was, for me, a highlight of my whole entire career to be working on this project as part of a team, and Jason in particular. So when I was in grad school, I had started working with Doug, and I was taking classes with him, and I was working on coming up with a dissertation topic, and Doug and I had started discussing that. And what I wanted to look at initially was how psychologists, psychiatrists, and clinicians more generally give expert testimony in court cases. So I was interested in how they take the work that they do in their world and translate that into a legal framework and the various challenges that are associated with that process. But I was also interested in comparing 
what clinicians do in a courtroom with what they do in their, their base environment, right, in the clinic. And as I spoke to Doug, he suggested that another way into doing the work that I wanted to do might be to start with the base environment. And Doug had done clinical, clinic-based research in the past. And I was really interested in the diagnostic process mm-hmm. and mental health more generally and medical sociology. And we started talking about what that might look like. And as we talked, we began drafting a research prospectus, and that evolved into a grant proposal that we eventually submitted. I think we first submitted it to the National Science Foundation, and that was really how the ball got rolling. And I guess I'll let Doug tell you about the specifics of that grant writing process, but also about his research in the clinic Mm -hmm. that he had done and that we ended up building upon. Right. I don't recall exactly how we got into studying the diagnostic process regarding autism, but the period of time that Jason is talking about was around 2010, 2011, where already the diagnosis of autism had increased dramatically over Mm. several decades. And it so happened that I had video recordings in a clinic for developmental disabilities And there were at least two of those cases that resulted in a diagnosis of autism. So we thought it would be an interesting thing to do to use that data as a kind of base point and then get some current data and see whether and how things may have changed with regard to diagnosis. And then we were just fascinated by this absolute increase in the diagnosis for autism. So we began talking about it, as Jason is saying. And fortunately, here at the University of Wisconsin, we can get seed money from the University of Wisconsin Foundation. It's called the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. Mm -hmm. And we got some seed money for that. And we went into the field, into the clinic in 2011. And this was the same clinic that I had done my earlier study in. That study, as you may know, resulted in some of the data that's published in my book on bad news, good news. We got into the clinic, we started collecting data, and then we used that data for a larger grant proposal. We first went to the National Institutes of Health, and we had no success there. And a colleague suggested, well, maybe you should go to the National Science Foundation, and particularly the science technology and society section. And that's what we did. I like to tell this story because I like to encourage researchers like us, especially conversation analysts, ethnomethodologists, who don't have a direct route into getting funding so much as other kinds of social science or linguistic research. Mm-hmm. So we've submitted three different proposals. Each of these three got turned down or not funded. And we were just about ready to give up. And one thing and another, at the last minute, we decided, well, let's give it one more try. And we got the grant that we had been working on. So it was a lot of work to shape the proposal in a way that would be satisfactory to the National Science Foundation. We got into this same clinic. Some of the clinicians who were there when I did my study in the mid-80s were still there, interestingly enough. But I'll up there. Does that answer your question? It does. I think that's a lovely outcome of the supervisory process, a long term collaboration yielding some really fabulous results. And of course, getting funding for it is probably a good 
milestone as well. I just wanted to hear a little bit more because when you first started talking about this, Jason, you explained what your initial idea was. So it'd be great to just hear a bit more about the history of your thinking as you moved from working on testimony and courtroom environments to looking at diagnoses. And also, Doug, if you would say something more about the original studies. So maybe if you could each say a little bit more about what the significance of the project is in your own research career and trajectory. For me, the project evolved over time and it developed in a very organic way, contingent way. There were things that sort of came up as we designed the research, as we went into the field, as we began to see what sorts of data we could collect. And that really shaped my own approach to the topic. So I would see things that I hadn't anticipated during the course of evaluations, issues that come up in the clinic surrounding clinician family relations, clinician staff relations. And that would give me new ideas about things that I might pursue and that we might pursue. And more and more as we moved forward with the project, it became very focused on the site where we were doing the field research and on the diagnostic process and also on autism more generally. And this complex phenomenon where you do have a massive upsurge in the prevalence of the diagnosis and arguably the incidence as well, but there's no explanation that everyone agrees upon for why that's so. And one thing that people hadn't done was actually look at diagnoses at the point of their application. And so that became increasingly interesting for me, just seeing that there was no real consensus. There were a lot of theories, there were a lot of arguments, some more persuasive than others, but there was no real entirely satisfying account of the way that diagnostic diagnosis mm. worked on the ground, so to speak. And the more immersed we became in our field site, the more the project took on a definite shape and definite parameters and ended up being focused on the sorts of things that I looked at in my dissertation, clinicians practices for her making autism diagnoses that are largely tacit. We talk about the narrative basis for diagnosis, storytelling as a basis for diagnosis. These are the sorts of things that came up as we watched clinicians go about their work that we couldn't have anticipated in advance. They were things that came out of the materials and that we ended up pursuing in greater detail. And as I said, that sort of shaped what eventually became the parameters of the project and gave it greater focus. That's a, a lovely explanation for how it fits around your other interests as well. And Doug, I wonder if maybe given that you had already invested time and energy in this area in the 80s and have personal experience of autism in your family, I would be very curious to hear about the relevance of the project or how it connected to other parts of your life and your research? Sure. To me, autism or the things that we take to be autistic behavior are in the first place very understandable ethnomethodologically in the sense that they represent threats to common sense ways of acting. And they fit with a more naturalistic approach to common sense knowledge and the tacit forms of actions or the tacit aspects of actions that we all engage in. And that was there from the beginning. And one reason why, even though the previous study in the mid eighties was more just to understand better the delivery and reception of diagnostic news, somewhat independently of what the substance of the news was, 
these cases of autism, I had been working on those just if, for my teaching seminars and that sort of thing and my own interests all along. And so this new project was a continuation of that. My son, Theo, was born in 1985. So he was actually born when I was collecting that other data. And he was diagnosed with what was then called high-functioning autism or Asperger's syndrome when he was in fifth grade. So that experience of raising a son who was diagnosed to be on the spectrum very much informed my understanding of what we might call autistic behaviors or different behaviors that are called autism. But that was not the motivation for the study. And then also, as we explain in the book and our acknowledgments, there's not much about our son Theo in the book for various reasons. One was that I didn't feel comfortable invading his privacy, and he's in some senses quite private. I mean, particularly when we got started on this project, the label of autism is very stigmatizing, and he had a real tough time with that, and I just didn't want to go into that. But also because, of course, the book was co-authored, so it didn't seem right to be writing about him when it was our dual project. But having that experience of living with raising someone on the spectrum has been enormously influential in my understanding of what we were seeing and what we were analyzing in the clinic. Let's talk about the book and some of the themes and ideas. I mean, we've touched on some of them. You do focus on the interaction order of the clinic and treat that perhaps opportunistically as a perspicuous setting for the study. And I was wondering what kinds of transferable problems that the participants solve relating to this co common sense in the clinic into other settings, other interaction orders? Is there a family resemblance that you noticed or that you might take from this? Yeah, I think that the interaction order of the clinic is something that, that became clear to us as we began to watch the way that clinicians did things and to compare the official accounts of what they were doing with the practices that they were actually engaged in as they went about making sense of the data that they were producing. In manuals, for example, the whole thing seems relatively straightforward. You look for certain behaviors or symptoms, you code them, often you quantify them, and then you come up with diagnostic findings, right? And there's so much work, there's so much practical tacit work that goes into to actually generating the data in the first place, producing a phenomenon that you can then fit to these categories that is simply glossed over if it's referenced at all, whether directly or indirectly, in these official accounts that clinicians produce. And so we ended up seeing that there were these patterns, these interactional patterns that sort of comprise part of the interaction or of the clinic. I think that as far as other diagnoses, that's one area where comparisons could be made. I think that the practices that are involved in doing autism diagnosis are likely pretty similar to the ones that are involved in diagnosing other, at least psychiatric slash psychological conditions. It's hard to be more specific because we haven't looked in any detail at how clinicians evaluate other 
presenting problems in the clinic. I think as far as the way that findings produced and made accountable within the interaction order of the clinic translate over to other interaction orders, I think that's still very much for me an interesting empirical question that I would like to investigate because there, there are these take it for granted, see and better notice ways of doing things in the clinic that will not necessarily translate easily into something like the legal realm and the educational realm. And one of the questions is, well, how does this translation work get done? I can sort of give you an example of just how, just how discontinuous some of these worlds can be. One thing that we encountered in the clinic as we did our research was that you'd have clinicians evaluating children who had an educational diagnosis of autism, but did not yet have a medical diagnosis. And it's possible in the U.S. to have an educational diagnosis, not a medical diagnosis, or a medical diagnosis, but not an educational diagnosis. Interesting. So educational psychologists could decide, well, you don't meet criteria. The condition, if you have it, doesn't impair your functioning in school. And so you don't qualify for special services. That can and does happen sometimes. And on the other hand, if you have an educational diagnosis, there are a whole bunch of services that you're not going to be eligible for, right? And insurance reimbursements that you might not qualify for. And so that raises questions about what exactly autism is, right? It's supposed to be this unitary phenomenon. In fact, you could have the same person being considered quote-unquote autistic in an educational setting and not autistic in a medical setting or vice versa. And so the question then is, well, okay, how is it that the practices involved in doing diagnosis and making it accountable are discontinuous in such a way that they generate what is for all practical intents and purposes of diagnosis of autism in one environment and not in others. And I think that clinicians pay very scrupulous attention in the clinic to making their diagnoses clinically accountable so that when people in other interaction orders, social workers, judges, teachers, principals look at the diagnosis, they can do something actionable with it. But there are a lot of questions, I think, about just how that translational work is done that the book raises, but doesn't necessarily answer. And so I think those are matters for future research to take up. Great. Maybe turning that question around or turning that framing around a little bit. Doug, I saw in the introduction to the book, you make an analogy with ways of defamiliarizing one's experience of perceptions and categorizations linked in various parts of the book to art practices of various kinds. You say autism enables us to explore what common sense presumes. So I was curious about whether autism is then a metaphor or is it a perspicuous category that has some coherence that you could use to observe the common sense interaction orders of the world at large? Uh, for me, it's very much the latter. I do think in the way that what we could call autistic behaviors threaten common sense, there's a kinship there between going to an art museum and seeing a piece of sculpture or a painting on the wall that just strikes you because it makes you question 
what it is that your ordinary perception takes for granted. And it's a motivating factor for going to art museums to have that everyday reality brought to reflective sensibility, let's say. And by the same token, autism or autistic behaviors can promote that experience on the part of others who are surrounding the autistic individual, paying attention to how this person is orienting in their own right can give you a different sense of how you yourself might orient in the world. So it's that experience of defamiliarization, or to put it in ethnomethodological terms, bringing to the fore the methods and practices of common sense that, in a sense, the take that we have on autism for this book. As far as diagnosis goes, which is a very complicated process, and we're looking at how children come to acquire the diagnosis or not, as the case may be. I mean, we're as interested in where it turns out not to be a diagnosis of autism. We're interested in how that gets done and how that gets done from a truly sociological or social interactional or ethnomethodological sense of things has to do not with that individual child as a sole occupant in the social world who is being acted upon to come up with an explanation of the anomalous seeming behaviors, but rather seeing that individual in the social interactional environment. And we also make a point about the interactive environment because the child is not only interacting with other people, at home with parents and siblings, in the clinic with the clinicians, but also with the instruments that are de being deployed in the clinic for assessing whether a child can qualify for the diagnosis. So there's an interactive and an interactional environment that that child is embedded in, and a fully, to our minds, sociological account needs to see those relationships, those interactional relationships and those interactive relationships to fully grasp how it is that this child in this setting can come to be seen as, quote unquote, having autism. I guess that makes the concept of intelligence rather awkward, as I guess that is intended in the term autistic intelligence. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that choice of title. Let me start and then I'll hand it over to Jason as you were talking. One of the things that we point out is that the term autistic intelligence is not one that we invented, of course. Both uh, Leo Connor, the German who came to America under auspices of the Nazi regime, not under the auspices, but as a reaction to that, and also Asperger, who was in Vienna, right? Yeah. So in each of their accounts, which were developed in the early 1940s and in Asperger's situation in unpublished work as early as 1938, they talk about autistic intelligence as these kind of superior forms of performance, real memorization abilities or musical talent and that sort of thing. And our use of that term is to describe that autistic intelligence is much broader 
and deeper than these limited forms of almost savantism that Connor and Asperger were describing. I just wanted to start with that. that. That term was used in a limited way previously. We're trying to broaden and understand how broad autistic intelligence really is. Yeah, I would say in some sense we're taking this term that has been used, certainly predates our work, as Doug was saying, it goes back to the late 30s, early 40s, and re-specifying it in terms of the, the many, many practices that it glosses. So what is autistic intelligence as a lived embodied phenomenon in everyday life? And that's the sort of thing that we're trying to get at and that, you know, the diagnostic process gives us access to because the test instruments in many ways encode common sense, common sense assumptions about the way that people ought to behave, what's normal, what's not normal. And in, in some sense, that the whole point of these tests is to quantify non-normality, so to speak, non-neurotypicality. And what's interesting is that when children, quote unquote, fail on these tests, when they don't produce neurotypical responses, when they don't answer the questions in expectable or expected ways, that's seen as incompetence. That's seen as a lack or an absence of ability or aptitude. But what we find is that those very failures, those very quote-unquote inadequacies, those unsatisfactory answers reveal something about the child's ways of making sense of the world that are not neurotypical necessarily, but that have a coherence and logic of their own. And as much as you could say the child is not living up to neurotypical expectations, you could turn that around and say neurotypical people are not living up to autistic expectations, right? There's a failure to make sense together. It's a joint failure. And so the problem doesn't belong to the child alone. It's a collective failure at sense making. And so we're de-individualizing this in a sense. Yes, it winds up being ascribed to a particular person, but it's something that's very much a socially embedded and socially produced phenomenon. It does not just belong to any one person. We talk about first order and second order competence and what autistic intelligence involves, I think, is using what we're describing as first-order competencies in non-normative, non-neurotypical ways. So a first-order competency is what you need in order to function in society at all. You need to be able to produce and recognize questions and answers. Assessments, invitations, requests, those are the sorts of things that you need to be able to do and to be involved in, in order to be a member of the society. They're very sort of basic practice. And you also need to be able to engage in things like turn-taking and gaze co-orientation and so forth. Those are fundamental competencies. But just because you've acquired those competencies do not necessarily mean that you can use them on behalf of what we call a second order activity or a socially structured activity. So just because you can recognize a question as a question does not necessarily mean that you can produce a test relevant answer to that question. So an example would be this kid, this child we call Tony Smith, and he's someone who was part of the research that Doug did in the 1980s. He was one of the two children diagnosed with autism, what was then called infantile autism. And there's this segment that we reproduce in the book where the clinician is asking Tony questions about what you do when you face common everyday problems. What do you do when you're cold? What do you do when you're tired, right? And what Tony does is he recognizes the question as a question and he deals with the question as a question, but he doesn't produce a test relevant answer. What he does is he constructs this narrative. What do you do when you're hungry, you eat? What do you do when you're tired? And he says, and then you go to sleep. And she asks, what do you do when you're cold? And he says, and then you get frozen, right? So he's producing this story 
which is a skill and a competence in its own right. But he's producing the story in response to a set of test questions that are supposed to be treated as bounded. There's a question, there's an answer, you move on to the next sequence that constitutes a test. He's not treating it that way. And so he's not getting the questions right. He's not at that moment participating in testing in an expectable and normative way, but he is exhibiting this competency, this ability to creatively produce a narrative in interaction with another person. And that's something that doesn't get recorded by the test at all. That's something that is totally off record, not something that's commented upon. It's not just a question of, okay, did he or did he not get the question right? But if he got it wrong, how did he get it wrong? And what does that exhibit about the way he's making sense of the world and the presence of skills and competencies and intelligence rather than just the absence? Yeah, and I would add to that also in that the way that this is where the interactive environment is important in understanding the manifestations of autism. So that when somebody sits down and writes a test, people who design these tests, they don't think about how it is that the design of the test may contribute to a different understanding than what it is that they are presupposing. So they're not going to sit there and think like, well, I'm going to have these questions and the, the name of this test, it's on the Brigantz inventory. It's called knows what to do in certain situations, which is about as good a definition of common sense as you could come up with, but that's the name of the subtest. So the designer is not sitting there and thinking about, okay, well, I'm going to ask these just common sense questions, but I wonder whether the order in which they're put will have an effect on how the child interprets them. So they don't think, for example, that, well, what do you do when you're hungry? And the answer is you eat. And what do you do when you're tired? And the answer is you rest. And what do you do when you get cold? That a child might put together those three questions and their answers in a coherent narrative. So I better reorder my questions. They're not going to notice that kind of thing. But that's where that's the interactive environment that the design of an instrument can contribute to the child's different interpretation of what we take to be a very common sense set of questions. And the other thing we do in the book is to also examine how the clinician is contributing to the building of this small narrative. But after what do you do when you're hungry and he says you eat? She says, okay, what do you do when you're sleepy? And he says, you rest. She doesn't give a boundary marker after that answer in the way that she did after the first one. She right. just immediately goes into what do you do when you're cold? And then Tony answers with what we know to be a connective in storytelling. He says, and then you get frozen. And so you can see how, in a way, the clinician is also contributing to what it is that he's doing in terms of building a narrative. So uh, there's the interactive and interaction environment that needs to be analytically taken into account when studying such a thing as testing and diagnosis. It's a beautiful example of autistic intelligence because it does exactly what you suggest. It gives you a vantage point from which to observe these taken for granted common sense orders of questioning as they get specialized within that test environment. And I guess I saw the irony in it, especially because I've been working on 
artificial intelligence and intelligence gets mobilized in a way that entirely contains the intelligent thing within a body, a mind, a brain, an electronic device. And it's precisely the opposite with autistic intelligence in expanding the social practices that are then recognized and recognizable through the intervention of the autistic person. A container metaphor is a pervasive one, right? The idea that you can contain anything from autism to intelligence in a body. The situation is a container. It's a set of stimuli that people respond to. And I think what's needed is a way of turning things around so that we treat the situation as an achievement and we treat its members as engaged in that achievement on an ongoing basis with no timeout. To paraphrase Garfinkel, I think moving from that container metaphor to that more relational approach casts all of these traditional problems like the subject-object dualism, material ideal, etc., in a different light. It raises different questions, but it also obviates some of the, the traditional questions that people are asking that wouldn't make sense if you're not thinking about autism, for example, as a thing that somebody has that doesn't extend in any way beyond their person. Right. Well, maybe that connects to the question I wanted to ask about the notions of interactional phenotype and of prosthetic environment as they relate to autism. These seem to be potentially transferable processes of respecification where you might find interactional phenotypes and prosthetic environments where you look for them. I wondered if you could say more about those terms because they seemed extremely productive to me and like they could be very useful for other researchers to pick up and use. Well, I'll start with the interactional phenotype. We have a chapter two, I think it is, that's a brief history in biology of autism. That was by far the most difficult chapter to write because we had to dig into the literature on the genetics and biology of autism or neurology of autism. And it's a pretty vast and sophisticated literature. And I can't claim that we have the sophistication to appreciate the nuances of what the genetic and neuroscientific approach is to autism. But certainly, it's the case that, and there's others who have also described this besides us, and we draw on their work, the idea is that autism is either caused by some genetic anomaly, or anomalies is the case, it's come to be seen as multigenic, or, uh, and or by some alteration in the biology in the brain, or the physiology in the brain, as a matter of fact. So that's the genotype or the neurotype, I guess, that can cause behavior. But then you have the phenotype, which is supposed to take into account to some degree the environment. But there's not much discussion about what the environmental contribution is. The, the entire focus almost is just on genetics and neurobiology. And by their own admission, we've, we document this in the book, very little has been discovered. The amount of explanation that you can engage when, for example, identifying a gene that may be involved in autism, you're talking about a very, very extremely small percentage of cases that will be accounted for by that genotype or some differentiation on the genome. And the same with neurobiology. I mean, in some ways, it's almost worse because as 
I think we say somewhere in that chapter, almost every finding that suggests that there's a site in the brain that is causative of autism has been discounted in, it doesn't, these studies don't get replication. There's just been multiple sites that have been identified as causative. So even though the quest is for the explanation or the explanations, the neurobiologists who do this kind of thing self-admittedly say, we haven't found much yet, but you know, we've got to keep going. So we came up with the notion of the interactional phenotype to say that behavior does not occur in a vacuum. Even when, usually when they talk about phenotypes, they're talking about some aspect of the environment, but they're not very specific about what aspect of the environment is contributing to the phenotype. So again, we're just trying to make a, a, a somewhat radical statement in saying that if you're going to, if you're interested in what we call autistic behavior, Behavior always occurs in a social interactional and social interactive environment. You cannot isolate a behavior from those aspects of the environment. The interactional phenotype is just the idea that let's look at behavior, but let's look at real behavior, which is behavior and interaction. And Manny Shagloff made this point a long time ago in one of his studies. And it's not that we're against neurobiological explanation, but if we're going to, we need to put at least as much effort into understanding socially interactional environments as we do the genomic and neurobiological environments. So that's kind of the interactional phenotype. As Doug was saying, they're a very, very long way from finding Certainly not a single gene, but even a cluster of genes, a configuration of genes that produces what we recognize as autism. We're very far from, from anything like that. But even if the researchers were to somehow pinpoint the necessary conditions at a genetic level or a neurobiological level for having what we recognize as autism, they still wouldn't be providing the sufficient conditions, which are social practices. I mean, you can have people exhibiting any sort of behavior that is connected to varying degrees with a supposed genetic predisposition, that behavior needs to be treated, A, as a symptom of disorder, and B, as a symptom of particular disorder. We talk in the book a little bit about how these behaviors that are now grouped together under the label autism have historically been documented in many different societies, but they weren't called autism. They were called everything from eccentricity to quote unquote idiocy or lonerism. I mean, there were any number of ways to categorize these behaviors. It's only under certain socio-historical circumstances that they come to be associated with autism specifically. And you can't explain that with reference to the human genome. That's something that needs to be explained at the level of social interaction. The interactional phenotype is comprised precisely of those sets of practices through which whatever predisposition somebody may have, are, are transformed into what is recognizable to members of our society and many others as autism. I think it's a wonderful term coupled with the idea of the prosthetic environment, 
because it seems to me to deal with some of the conceptual problems that disability scholars have been talking about for a while now that social model of disability and the medical mod model of disability as dichotomies tend to be somewhat reductive either of the needs and specializations and and reflexivity of the individual in the social model or on the other hand of course dehumanizing and treating somebody like a kind of broken piece of meat to be fixed and endlessly played with so the interactional phenotype and the prosthetic environment seem to me to get away from some of those slightly problematic ontologies the book does look beyond autism as a diagnosis and that's I think what autistic intelligence really brings out I wonder if you could say something more about the prosthetic environment and maybe how it interacts with those sociological categories that have been very ascendant and now problematic within disability studies. Just to give a little background to the notion of the prosthetic environment, that's not our notion, but it fits with our way of understanding autism because we are describing autism as a social interactional, socially interactive phenomenon. And the prosthetic environment is about altering the environment rather than the individual. And the history of it is, as I understand it, so some years ago, there were some disabled activists in Berkeley, California, who found just going out in a relatively warm environment when you could have access to the out of doors year round, but going along on the sidewalks, it was really problematic to get off of the sidewalk onto the street, cross the street, get back on the sidewalk. And they made a case and eventually were able to win approval and get funding from the city to put cuts in the curb. And that meant that they could roll a wheelchair along the sidewalk, go down this tiny little ramp on the corner, go across the street, go up another small ramp on the next corner, and go along. And one of the interesting things about this kind of change to the environment is that even though we think of it as helping those who are disabled, in fact, people who are temporarily able to benefit immensely too. So people who have grocery carts, people who are wheeling a piece of luggage down the sidewalk, people who are on their bikes, people who have strollers, everybody benefits. And that's one of the interesting things about the notion of the prosthetic environment. Usually we think of a prosthesis as, you know, somebody's lost an arm or a leg and they get a prosthesis that helps that individual. This is taking a sociological or social interactional view of the matter when saying let's not work on fixing the individual. I mean, we can certainly improve people's skills and things, but let's also work on the environment. It transferred to the realm of social interaction and our approach to understanding autism is a violation of common sense. It might be that if we can better understand autistic intelligence, then we, that is the common sense actors, can adjust our taken for granted notions in a prosthetic kind of way to accommodate this intelligence that is underappreciated, underdocumented, underanalyzed, that are otherwise known as autistic behaviors. 
And so instead of trying to fix the autistic individual, we're fixing our common sense ways of acting in the world. Garfinkel had those notions built into some of his early analyses. One thing Garfinkel really calls attention to is the role of trouble in revealing the taken for granted practices that people are engaged in to assemble the social world, the seen but unnoticed practices that are usually in the background and that people aren't consciously attending to. When we talk about this scaffolding and features of the environment that may that may exclude certain people, that may marginalize certain people, that may make them seem incompetent when in fact they are competent, but in non-commonsensical ways. If you look at these breaches, these troubles, these quote-unquote failings, what you get is access to this scaffolding, right? To this interactive international environment that is often simply not on people's radar. And treating that as an opportunity to redesign the environment in a very conscious, deliberate way so that it is more accommodating and it doesn't exclude or marginalize is something that we really try to point to in the book that these are opportunities and that there are ways that we can treat failures of mutual sense-making as opportunities to redesign the environment in a way that not only benefits the person with autism, the autistic person, but will wind up benefiting everybody because it expands, in a sense, it expands what common sense is and what common sense can be. It doesn't just give us access to autistic intelligence, it also makes us more aware of what it is that we're doing, people who aren't on the spectrum, in interaction with one another and with people who have been diagnosed with autism. I think it's mutually beneficial in precisely that way. And it's seeing those troubles as opportunities for change and transformation that I think is really important for all parties involved in these interactions with people who are on the spectrum. On the one hand, you talk about communications training for physicians. Then there's more radical societal transformations of our understanding of common sense to accommodate this notion of autistic intelligence. I'd be curious to hear you talk about how you might do both. How would you be bringing this to clinicians, families, parents in that very practical sense? And then also what more radical societal transformations might be conceivable? I think it's quite controversial to some, and there may be quite a lot of resistance. And it'd be interesting to hear from you if you've had any responses from people with a vested interest in the testing and evaluation or testing frameworks that already exist. Yeah, let me start with a little bit of our experience of already having presented some of our findings to clinicians. They have, I would say, Jason, you can add to this, but they're quite fascinated with what we can get at that they are not real good at getting at. Everybody that we worked with as clinicians were highly trained, highly competent, highly oriented to being professionals. And then we bring to them what we can do and what we can study. And they're quite fascinated by it. And they think it's a real contribution to the understanding of what they're doing. But then they have two reactions, which are completely understandable, valid reactions. One is, but we don't know how to do this. And we don't know how we would learn to do it. Well, of course, because they're not getting 
conversation analytic ethnomethodological training. We don't have the time. We transcribe, we look at the tapes again and again. They couldn't possibly do that. But it's, it's in our view, possible to make at least small inroads. And we tried to do this. We didn't try. I mean, we actually did do this in the sense that working with a couple of experts on diagnosis to show them what we were able to, or what we do look at and ask them, would this help in improving the diagnostic process? Because serious clinicians want to improve their own practice in working with a couple of individuals who really want to do this, one of whom was involved in the, the sort of maintenance of the main diagnostic instrument and worked under Catherine Lord, who basically invented with Michael Rutter, the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic and Observation Schedule. And we could say like, okay, this is what we see. And could you do this that would improve the understanding of the child or the understanding of the child's performance? So one of these was the book, the boy that we called Dan, who was doing the, um, the test that's to demonstrate how you brush your teeth. It's called the demonstration component of the ADOS. And there was a, to make a long story short, there was a component where the clinician was modeling how he might do this because he was re refusing to do it. And she modeled how you learn how to drive a car. The idea is that if I model this, then he'll pick up on how you demonstrate something, a skill like brushing your teeth. And in the midst of her demonstration, he says, I know how to drive a car. And it was something like his grandpa had let him sit on his lap or something. And the clinician just ignored that and went on. And he continued to refuse to do the demonstration. What if she had said, oh, well, then can you demonstrate to me how to drive a car? The question being, is that a disruption of standardization? And she said, no, that would be allowable. And so there's these nuances. And we were talking about collaborating on that sort of project, introducing some nuances into the administration of the ADOS. But again, it would, it's a long process. And we would have to get a grant so that we could work together and, and those kinds of things. But we were on our way. And then COVID came along. And for other reasons, we just couldn't pursue so if we were to do something like that, it just takes collaborations. It takes maybe something like unique adequacy, as Garfinkel called it, and it takes time. What I would add is that, and maybe this also goes to the question about more general social changes that would need to happen in order for some of the things we're proposing to actually be implemented and taken on board. The clinicians, as Doug was saying, have told us in many instances, you know, this is interesting, but it's not something that we're trained to do. It's also not something that we have time to do. And here, I think that the comparison between the work we did between 2011 and 2015 and the work Doug did in the 80s is instructive. When Doug was in the clinic in the 80s, an evaluation could take two to three days and families would come from various places. They might even, if they were from out of town, they'd stay overnight. 
and you'd have this large team of clinicians evaluate the child. Sometimes their teachers would come to be part of the evaluation process as well. A, a caseworker might come. So this was not at all uncommon. Nowadays, clinicians are expected to do the evaluation sometimes in two to three hours, right? And so there is a very different time structure and a very different set of pressures and demands today because of the way healthcare is financed, because of waiting lists, et cetera, for organizational and structural reasons that were not there or certainly not there to the same extent in the 80s. And so I think part of the issue is that clinicians have these massive caseloads. They simply don't have enough time to deal with all of them. They deal with the ones that they assess as they assess them in a very rigorous way to the best of their ability. These are all very competent, trained professionals who really put their all into assessing children and working with families. But it's a question of time and of resources and not just awareness of what more, as Garfinkel would say, is being missed by the things that are recorded by the test, but remain off record for all other intents and purposes, if they're even noticed at all. I think a part of it is making changes to the way that we as a society organize the evaluation process, the resources that are provided to clinicians, to educators, to families who are raising children with challenges. Because if we don't, if we don't do that sort of thing, if we don't make those sorts of changes, it, it will be very difficult to take the sorts of things that we're proposing and really integrate them into the assessment process in any systematic way. I think like Doug was saying, they can be incorporated to a certain degree. And I think one of the things that we bring to the table is these identifications of things that any formal analytic instrument will miss. The what more that's nonetheless exhibited in the child's ways of sense-making and their practices for displaying that sense-making, those can provide opportunities for learning about and working with the child and other members of their environment that the test just doesn't. And so I guess part of it is a question of time and resources. Part of it is a question of within the constraints created by time and resources, widening the scope of things that are potentially noticeable and storyable, right? And actionable scope of things that we might attend to and call attention to, even though they don't necessarily get codified in the test results or reflected in the official test results. These are important pieces of information. And they also help to offset this notion that the child is an imperfect neurotypical, right? An imperfect, quote unquote, ordinary person. Mm. Um, it reinforces this notion that the child is making sense. And there is a logical coherence to that sense, and that that has value in its own right. To not only use the test as yardstick, but to also ask what more the child is doing that we can be paying attention to. And that can wind up mattering, not only for the diagnosis, but the outcomes children experience after they leave the clinic and go back into the wider society. Did you have something to add there, Doug? Yes, thank you. Yeah, to add just a little bit, we haven't had much of a chance to talk about our approach to understanding interactionally what the diagnostic process consists of. And I think we can keep this relatively short, but we analyze the arriving at a diagnosis as a narrative endeavor. And it's about clinicians telling stories about what they found by way of their testing or what they found by way of their talking to school officials and that sort of thing. 
And we don't mean that it's storytelling in a, like sitting around telling stories in a campfire or something, but rather that there's really no other way than narrating what you found and how you found it. And we identified two different kinds of stories. On the one hand, what we call instantiation stories, which are about singular instances, and they're often introduced with what we come to call instantiation markers. If you're, if you say, for example, you're going to get a story about a singular event in time and space. And then the other kind of story are these tendency stories, which are reporting on quantities of behavior. In fact, sometimes they use that very term. Joey has a tendency to perseverate. That sort of thing. And it's that, it's the tendency stories that seem to feed into deciding on a diagnosis, whereas the instantiation stories are often just cute illustrations or that kind of thing, but they're full of information, particularly about this thing that we're calling autistic intelligence. And if we were, in fact, we do make some recommendations as far as going back to this notion of the prosthetic environment, one way that we can do something to enhance or create a, a prosthetic environments is to enhance the information that comes by way of these instantiation stories, bringing more of that information into the diagnostic process. I'm struck by what you said, Jason, about the constraints of resources and time. And there probably doesn't seem in the, these clinicians' experience time to draw out and attend to these narratives. And I'm sure that they're not conceiving of their diagnostic process as an activity of narrativizing something. That one little piece that I missed out on, although you answered some of it, Jason, was whether clinicians had reacted to that specific characterization of the diagnostic process and whether that was seen as problematic, controversial, diminishing of their objectivity or their role? I don't think they've, they've reacted to that per se. I could certainly see somebody reacting to that because it seems like this is the soft underbelly of what seems like a quote-unquote hard scientific approach to testing. But the point that we make in the book is that these practices are not in some way noise that's distorting an otherwise high-fidelity signal, right? These practices are actually constitutive of that signal. It's how the test as a perceivably objective instrument is used and then interpreted and made sense of. So the practices are not incidental to the doing of the test, and they're not distorting the doing of the test in any way. They're actually constitutive of the practice of testing in the clinic, within the interaction order of the clinic. And so that, that's what I would point out. It's not a question of criticizing or judging or claiming that these practices are in some way faulty. It's more a question of saying, okay, this is the way that it gets done. This is the way clinical business gets done. And given that's the way it gets done, that it's not codified in, in manuals or taught formally in classes or anything like that, what can we do to be more mindful of it perhaps? What more this element that is sort of there, but not really noticed hiding in plain view in clinicians' practices. So it's not meant to provoke controversy or undermine clinical practice. It's meant to explain how it is that clinical practice is accomplished and made accountable. Fantastic. Well, I think we better 
leave it there. You've both spoken really beautifully about this. I think it will be a great advert for the research that you're bringing together in the book. I thought it was a great read and hopefully really satisfying for clinicians. Just before we end, I wonder if you might give any advice, because I know that a lot of early career researchers listen to the podcast. And if there's any advice that you'd have, given your experience of putting this book together over the course of a decade of research and collaboration, what did you learn from the book that you feel you could share with other researchers that they might find insightful, useful, motivating, or discouraging? I don't know, whatever you want to put in there. Let me defer to the younger person on this collaboration. I mean, I have to say, um, be persistent. And don't, don't let a setback or multiple setbacks necessarily deter you from pursuing the research. There are lots of pathways into a topic, into the field, into the research process. And I would say that if you know one avenue is not working, try another. And be flexible in terms of the focus that you're coming into the research process with. There's a lot that you're going to discover, especially as you enter the field, even in a minimal way, that will shape the way that you think about the work that you're doing, the people you're studying, what it is that they're doing. And I would just be open to that and to learning from the people that you're working with and studying as you go. Thanks very much to Doug and Jason for recording this interview with us. Thanks also to Peter Daniel for providing our title track, Ethnomethodology, from the album Convulsive Listening. This interview format is one of many types of podcasts that the ISCA Publications Committee is currently working on. We're also hoping with our new website, social media presence and the forum newsletter which are now becoming better established to generate discussion and collaboration and to invite members of the community to join us in the publications committee and also to help us with editing trying things out and discovering new ways of sharing our interest and excitement about these naturalistic explorations of social interaction so if you have any ideas or you'd like to participate please go to conversationanalysis.org reach out to us we'd love your input on what we're doing which is to hopefully establish a really international connection between our em and ca communities thank you for listening